Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Elka Weber, the Gerhard R. Anlinger Professor in Energy and the Environment, Professor of Psychology and Public Affairs, and Associate Director for Education for the Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment at Princeton University. Elka is a social psychologist who studies how people make choices, and in today's episode, I'll ask her how those choices matter for climate change. We'll talk about the ways that companies, governments, and society shape decisions on energy use and civic engagement, how those decisions get incorporated into the tools used for policy analysis, and much more. Stay with us. All right, Elka Weber from Princeton University, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much, Daniel. So Elka, you work on a wide variety of issues, and you have worked on a wide variety of issues over your career. Um, in recent years, you know, you've done a lot of work on environmental issues. Um, so I'm curious what attracted you to working on those issues, either at, at a young age or perhaps later in life as you've uh, turned to this focus in your career. Thanks. Yeah, in my case, it was somewhat later in life. I've long worked on how people make decisions, uh, decisions that involve uncertainty uh, and where it takes a while oftentimes to show whether the decision you just made turns out to be good or bad. Uh, and uh, you know, the decisions I studied initially in that category were choices about how much to save for your retirement uh, or sort of how much to exercise and, and, and how to eat currently for future health uh, benefits uh, and for longevity. Uh, and then when I took my first academic job at the University of Illinois, the provost there had asked me to organize a campus-wide faculty group of people who studied such decisions from different disciplinary perspectives, you know, like the economists, the psychologists, you know, the people in the law school, the people in the business school. And that group actually included some agricultural economists, and they had just written a proposal to the National Science Foundation uh, to study to what extent farmers uh, in East Central Illinois knew about climate change. This was in 1988 uh, or 87, like a long time ago. And yeah, we had just heard in Congress about climate change for the first time. So this was like early on in the game. Uh, and, and, and so they wanted to understand to what extent farmers were aware of the possibility of climate change yeah, and how they changed their, their farming practices. And NSF, the National Science Foundation, said, this is great. It's a great proposal, but you're going to go and ask farmers about you know, sort of their behavior. You economists, you know nothing about you know, sort of uh, how, how to ask questions to real people. Uh, get yourself a psychologist on the team. So because they knew me from this, from this faculty group, they came to me and, and asked me to join. Uh, and, and, and the rest is history. I actually I joined their group. We had like a really interesting uh, study, a real field study. <laughs> we went out on the fields. Uh, we found out that about half the farmers knew about climate change or, and, and actually believed that it was a real thing. The other ones might have heard about it, but they thought it was basically sort of you know, not, not, not a real thing. Uh, just hype, uh, and 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 we we found out that sort of these these different groups, yeah, you know, sort of did different things. The people who thought it was an issue did something about it, you know, either in terms of their farming practices, you know, sort of starting to irrigate more, uh, or using different types of seed corns, uh, or or doing political things, yeah, you know, or. Uh, uh, basically diversifying their, their, their financial responses. Uh, but yeah, no group did like all, all three of those things. So we, we had lots of interesting insights, but the bottom line is yeah, sort of uh, people started to know that I, as a psychologist, was interested in, in this applied issue. And there aren't that many psychologists who are studying applied uh, 
issues in the field. Uh, my colleague Baruch Fischoff at Carnegie Mellon was one of those uh, people, one of the few exceptions. Uh, and he at the time was being asked by too many committees, you know, by the National Academy of Sciences or other groups uh, that were studying climate change awareness and action to, to join them. So he couldn't possibly do it all. So when he heard that I was doing it as well, he would recommend me uh, to whatever group he couldn't make it to. I was a poor substitute for my much more senior colleague, Baruch Fischoff. Uh, and by virtue of going to these groups and, and interacting with uh, you know, climate scientists and economists yeah, and, 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 and meteorologists, just, I really got a crash course on the huge looming importance of, of the issue. Uh, and then since then, I really have shifted much of my research, almost at this point, almost everything, uh, to investigating you know, basic science questions related to climate decision making. And, and, and you can actually study real, really fundamental issues in decision making in, in this area, because climate change in many ways is a perfect storm. It has so, so much uncertainty related to what's going to happen in the future. Uh, it, you, know, it, you, know, you, you won't find out whether the decision you right, made right now is correct or not until you know sometimes years later uh, it has collective action issues uh, and uh, it's so important that we understand how we deal with all of these obstacles to making wise decisions uh, because the existence of our species on this planet depends on it and it is a perfect scientific test bed so that's that's why i am where i am wow that's such fascinating history i um would have been fun to be out there literally in the in the field with you and you were speaking with those farmers, uh, you know, a couple decades ago now. So we've talked a lot on the show about public policies that uh, are designed to address climate change. We talk a lot with economists, but we haven't spoken much about the role that individual choices play in the absence of climate policy or maybe as a complement to climate policy. So what are some examples that come to your mind of behavioral interventions that have the potential to play a large role when it comes to addressing climate change? You actually just asked several important, but also quite different questions. So maybe let me un unpack it a little bit. I, I think the first question you, you pose is what can people do? Uh, and as you say, in the absence oftentimes of, of, of policy on, on climate change. Uh, and when it comes to people, you know, we people, we are both citizens and we are consumers. Uh, and as citizens, we can uh, hold our policymakers responsible to do what we elect them to do namely to responsibly do our long-term strategic planning for us. Uh, and citizen action groups, uh, oftentimes actually started by young people who have much longer lives ahead of them, like Fridays for Futures or Extinction Rebellion, do precisely that. They hold you know, our, our policymakers responsible. Uh, and, and there are data you know, from Northern Europe and also uh, from my lab in the US uh, that show that uh, voters uh, with much greater frequency uh, uh, will vote for candidates willing to embrace climate action as we experience greater uh, greater intensity of extreme heat in our congressional districts. Yeah. And so, so more likely you actually sort of see climate change perhaps yeah, being present uh, in the here and now, the more likely do you hold uh, your elected officials responsible for doing something about it. And not just heating, yeah, sort of yeah, uh, climate heating, but also weird weather yeah, and, 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 and greater hurricanes, uh, extreme weather events in general, I think will make people more aware of the issue and more likely to put pressure on the elected officials. But that, as I said, we're not just citizens, we also are consumers. Uh, and there are a good number of impactful things we actually can do as consumers. Uh, organizations like Project Drawdown you know, or Rare, a lot of NGOs have been telling us you know, what, what these are. So we can reduce our food waste, 
we can cut down on our red meat consumption. Uh, we can use public transit when we uh, when it's available. We can invest in energy efficient and sustainable lighting or heating and cooling technology. All of these actions are really high on that list, uh, and yeah, and, and and oftentimes quite accessible in terms of you know sort of uh, alternative options to what we currently are doing. Now. The second question that you asked is, you know, uh, came up when you talked about behavioral interventions. And so that question in some sense is, are there tools that public officials or private companies uh, or anybody can use to help us make decisions with which we'll be happy in the long run? And that help us maybe overcome obstacles to making wise decisions uh, related to the environment uh, that might result from our desire for immediate satisfaction uh, or to our aversion for change yeah, and the resulting status quo bias that we see in so many areas. Uh, and the, the, the short answer to that second question, are there tools, uh, are there behavioral interventions that help? The short answer is yes. Uh, and, and those interventions uh, have been researched extensively for the last 50 years or so, uh, oftentimes under the label of choice architecture. Uh, and so just like physical architecture shapes how we act in a building, you know, if you want people to take the stairs, you don't hide the stairs in the back and make the elevator you know, sort of beautiful, but you put a beautiful sweeping staircase in, in, in the front of the building in marble and you hide the elevators. And, and so just as physical architecture shapes how we act, uh, the way decisions are uh, designed for us or by us uh, actually influence how we decide. So that includes such elements as which option is presented first, uh, when they're presented sequentially, whether there is a default option that will be in place if you don't decide otherwise, uh, what is that default, how many options are presented, you know, how are the options described, you know, are they described in a more analytic way with numbers and figures or by you know, sort of images, uh, and whether this description uh, and the physical and the social context of the decision elicits you know, emotions like guilt you know, or pride or social norms, uh, or it basically induces us to do calculations. Uh, and uh, so all of these factors you know, that, that go under choice architecture make a sizable difference in how we, how we make decisions and oftentimes help us overcome you know, sort of more short-term obstacles. Right. That's great. And um, are, are there specific examples that come to mind where this type of choice architecture has been employed in the real world and where it's kind of resulted in a meaningful difference? Absolutely. And let's maybe just take two examples from the list of interventions I just gave you. So maybe we can start with, with social norms. Uh, and so is, is, is there something you know, in the decision that elicits you know, sort of how other people sort of typically uh, make these decisions and what they decide, or whether the other people want us to make decisions in a certain way? So a while back, a group of social psychologists actually experimented with providing utility customers, you know, electric utility customers, with feedback on their monthly bills. You know? And so we all get these bills, you know, uh, sometimes by mail, sometimes now electronically by email. Uh, but they're telling us you know, how many kilowatt hours we used. And, and that's a pretty meaningless number for most of us, you know, unless we're engineers. Uh, but what they did is they basically sort of added some description about how, how your uh, use of electricity 
compared to other people sort of in your neighborhood in, in similar circumstances with a similar house of a certain size and so on. And they were showing you you were higher than average or lower than average and how much higher and lower than average. Uh, and, and so psychologists was, would call that a descriptive norm. This was basically saying others actually can do with more electricity or others can do with less electricity than you. Um, and they, they found out that that actually did decrease people's use of electricity because they were trying to basically sort of bring their, their usage down to what, what, what others were, were uh, experiencing. But it turned out that those people who were using less electricity than the average actually sometimes increased their use <laughs> to, to be more in line with, with everybody else. And so what the, the psychologists then added was like a little uh, sort of uh, icon at, at, at the end that sort of had a smiley face when you were doing better than average or had a little frowny face when you're doing worse than average and it turns out and, and, and you can think about these smiley and frowny faces as uh, norms that are telling you what's desirable so it's desirable to use less electricity it's not desirable to use more electricity yeah and and, and now having these these other kind of norms you know, uh, in place actually prevented people who were using less to actually increase their use. Uh, turns out these psychologists turned their intervention into a company. It's called Opower. Uh, it went public uh, a few years ago to the tune of a billion dollars. It's now providing utility companies around the world with basically sort of, you know, this kind of billing uh, expertise. Uh, and it has been estimated to save between sort of two and seven percent uh, of electricity usage by just adding this, this, this very basic information to the monthly bill. That's fascinating. Was there another example that you wanted to give? Yeah, I can I can give you a second example. Uh, and, and, and let's maybe sort of look at how defaults have been used uh, or could be used to encourage, uh, you know, sort of uh, energy uh, reductions or more uh, responsible energy use. Uh, and so defaults, again, to remind us uh, is, you know, when, when you're telling somebody a certain option uh, will be in place unless you decide otherwise. Uh, and uh, so when it comes to uh, using uh, green electricity, switching from you know, your provider from brown electricity, that's a mix you know, of uh, coal and gas and other sources, uh, to uh, an optimal uh, combination of, of green electricity in your district, when you ask Americans across the political spectrum, are you in favor of using green electricity to the extent that we can, uh, the vast majority says yes, something like 80 to 90 percent across, you know, sort of Democrats, Republicans, we all like green electricity. Uh, and yet, when I know you've tried to do this, when you try to switch from your typical provider to a green provider, it's not a simple process. It takes like 20 minutes to half an hour because the default is that you get brown electricity unless you decide otherwise. And that takes a lot of effort and, 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 and the websites are not always very helpful. So why not switch the default to green electricity? So you get like the, the letter in the mail and the letter will say, well, unless you decide otherwise, from next month on, we're going to switch you to green electricity. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but it's worth it for the environment or, or any other kind of message. Well, when uh, when people have tried to do this, utilities have tried to do this, they find that first of all, you know, sort of not surprisingly, uh, the next months, you know, almost everybody will stick to green electricity as a given default because most people probably just sort of, you know, didn't even look you know, at the letter they got in the mail. But even when they find out that now it's costing them like maybe five to 10% more on the electricity bill and they see they've been switched to green electricity because they actually endorse that, they, they, they stay with that, you know, that, that choice option. So why not give people uh, as a default 
default, that option that the vast majority would prefer to have rather than having sort of the minority choice be the default and taking everybody's time and, and effort to get out of it. Right. That's so interesting. So I, I could ask you so many questions about uh, th these types of nudges, behavioral nudges uh, in their examples in the real world, but I'd like to change the subject now to uh, to relate a topic, which is modeling. So um, there are all sorts of uh, modeling uh, tools that policy analysts use to analyze the potential effects of energy or climate policies or you know all sorts of other policies as well. And oftentimes in those models, people are assumed to act uh, as economically rational actors, right? Homo economicus, rather than the way we actually act, which is homo sapiens, um, and, you know, not always making the most, uh, quote-unquote, rational decision. So to what extent have the behavioral insights that you study been incorporated into the types of modeling tools that analysts use to examine the potential long-term implications of energy and climate policies? I know that's a big question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It is indeed a big question. Let me maybe elaborate first a little bit on your first statement that people are not uh, fully rational. Uh, and uh, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, and uh, But I also would argue that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. People uh, are not fully rational, but in fact, we come with a far richer set of goals and a far broader uh, ways of processing information than Homo economicus. Uh, so, so do we care about our uh, our own self-interest? Yes, we do. But we also do care about other people. We do care about the future of, of humankind on our on our planet. Uh, and uh, on on top of making sort of rational calculation-based decisions, you near know, cost-benefit decisions appropriately discounted, and 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 so on, and, and 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 treating probabilities accurately, we oftentimes make decisions based on our feelings. Yeah, you know, we do things out of guilt or fear. We do things out, out of pride, pride in being part of a solution. Uh, and oftentimes we also uh, basically follow basic rules of conduct. You know, we talked a little bit about social norms. You know, we, we, we imitate what other people are doing, uh, who we trust and respect. That's like a shortcut. It's a very useful shortcut. Or we do things you know, that, that we think others want us to do. Or we follow uh, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, sort of moral or religious rules of conduct, standard operating procedures in, 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 in companies, uh, in, in our professional uh, decisions. Uh, and, and so all of these different ways of making decisions are actually quite useful in our sort of in our daily life. Uh, and, and, and so it's not surprising that you know, we, we don't necessarily just calculate cost and benefit when it comes to making decisions related to, to environmental issues, to climate change. And so now, now is your question, well, how do we incorporate that knowledge that people have a much broader way of making decisions into our forecasting tools? Yeah, because, you know, as you said, the forecasting tools assume that people are uh, just sort of doing, you know, sort of what ca calculating what it will cost them, yeah, appropriately discounted and so on. Uh, and, yeah, and, and so as soon as a new technology becomes available and if it's cheaper, we will switch immediately. Well, we know that people don't switch to a new technology the minute it becomes cheaper because uh, yeah, we might not be uh, sure that this technology is as safe. You know, there, there, there are all sorts of status quo reasons uh, that, 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 that we decide you know, to delay things. Yeah, so how do we incorporate that into our forecasting models? Well, I think the first, the first realization needs to be that uh, there is knowledge on a broader set of decision processes. 
Uh, and so that therefore the, 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 the forecasting method that assume that decisions are made just rationally most likely are inaccurate. Yeah? They might make maybe on average the right uh, forecast, but maybe there's a broader inter confidence interval around it. Yeah? Or there might actually be some bias. And, 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 and chances are our current forecast models about what a change uh, in reduction of, of prices of solar uh, energy uh, will, will bring about are probably too optimistic yeah, because people are not switching immediately. There are all sorts of social and cultural reasons for why we don't do that. Um, so uh, it's interesting that it took uh, 20 some years before these non-rational decision processes actually were first even mentioned uh, in official publications, like for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It is a mouthful and that's why people abbreviate it as IPCC. <laughs> uh, but the IPCC has been issuing reports you know, since the early 1990s, uh, but it took them until uh, 2014 uh, to the fifth assessment report before they even mentioned non-rational decision processes, you know, these, you know, the, the influence of norms, the influence of emotions uh, in, in, in that assessment report. It came in a chapter on risk management. Uh, I was actually a co-lead author on that and we sort of smuggled it in you know, uh, to, 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 to basically sort of you know, make the, the community aware of that. Um, and uh, people have been uh, actually doing simulations. Yeah, researchers have been doing simulations. Uh, how forecasts change when we include this broader range of human responses? Uh, and not surprisingly, as I said before, it increases the uncertainty that we have about, for example, how much will global temperatures increase by 2100? Yeah? Uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's a range that sort of goes from like two degrees to seven to eight degrees. Uh, and, and a lot of the uncertainty in the existing forecast methods has to do with you know, the, the climate system, how sensitive is the climate system to certain kinds of you know, actions like increasing the, uh, the, 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 the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, but it turns out that the uncertainty we have about sort of final results, like in terms of global warming down the road, is just as much uh, related to our uncertainty about the human response as it is to uncertainty about the climate system response. And so that really suggests you know, that we have, to, we have to incorporate it. But it, it, it's not all just bad news because you know, it, it does increase the uncertainty, but also because we actually have uh, solutions. We know how to influence uh, people's behavior. It's not just all a black box and we just have to sort of hope for the best. But you know, with, with the right kind of uh, policies, with the right kind of technological advances, with the right kind of choice architecture, we can actually sort of uh, shape people's responses you know, to uh, extreme weather events you know, or to, to, to changes in the cost of different technologies. Uh, and so uh, these, uh, these interventions and, and, and this greater knowledge about human response uh, can be used not just you know, sort of to have better forecasts, but also to have better uh, ways of influencing in which directions you know, sort of these different branches of the forecast tree will go. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So another question I wanted to ask you, Elka, is about um, some recent work that has come um, as critiquing 
uh, policy or messaging that focuses on the demand side of the equation, right? Encouraging people to improve their energy efficiency, for example. So there have been some studies that have come out recently that, you know, take messaging from energy companies like large oil companies that have encouraged people to be more energy efficient and argued that those messages are disingenuous. Um, the research argues that efforts to frame the climate challenge as one of energy demand inherently reduces the focus on energy supply. Um, so I'm just curious what you you know make of these arguments uh, and, and how you see them fitting in with your work uh, that really does focus on the behavioral and demand side of the equation. Great question. It's absolutely true uh, that fossil fuel companies, you know, like Exxon, uh, have tried to deflect blame for the climate crisis away from them uh, and onto consumers. Uh, for example, the notion that people have a carbon footprint was introduced by BP. <laughs> Uh, and you know, nobody sort of thought about that beforehand. But, but that, that does not mean that demand-side action does not matter, uh, and it's, that, that it's just a, a deflection and a distraction. Uh, it turns out that demand-side uh, and supply-side, of course, both matter. It's, it's, it's not one or the other, it's all of the above. Uh, the IPCC report that just came out uh, uh, this, this past year, that's a sixth assessment report, and the report by Working Group 3 uh, on, on, on climate mitigation, uh, that it was just released three weeks ago, and it actually has a historic first chapter on demand, services, and social aspects of mitigation. Uh, and again, for full disclosure, actually, I'm one of the 13 lead authors on that chapter. Uh, but that chapter distills research uh, and analysis from thousands of studies, you know, probably like less, you know, close to 2,000 studies. And we find over, over the last sort of 20, 30 years, we find that there are effective ways of reducing energy demand in every sector of our lives and of our economy, from transportation to buildings, industry and land use and so on. Uh, and those changes have the potential to reduce demand by between 40 and 70 percent, depending on sector. Uh, but that requires that individual choice is facilitated and supported by infrastructure innovation, technology and policy. Uh, and so does, does demand uh, reduction uh, matter? Absolutely. But it's not just something that has to be put on the backs of, 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 of citizens yeah, and, and, and ordinary people. It has to be supported by all levels of organizations, by technological and policy change. So it, it's not so simple then to say, okay, you guys do it because governments won't. That's so interesting. You mentioned here... Um technological change. And, and this is the last question I want to ask you before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is, you know, as new technologies emerge, um, to what extent do you think we'll be able to take advantage of them uh, to enhance the types of behavioral interventions that we've been talking about? For example, right, meat substitutes, right, which I've really been, I, I've been enjoying my Impossible Burgers lately, or, you know, using virtual meetings instead of taking flights. Can you reflect on how technology might uh, give us more opportunities in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think having these new products or, or new technologies available uh, is, is a great thing. And in fact, it's a necessary condition for us to switch away from, from uh, you know, sort of uh, products like red meat uh, or from, uh, you know, sort of uh, commuting uh, by car. Uh, if, 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 if there's no public transit available, uh, if, if you have to travel to your conference to participate and you don't have Zoom available to do that, we, we can't do it. Yeah, so I think sort of uh, the, 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 these, these innovations are very, very important. But related to our last point is that they're not necessarily sufficient. You know, just because something exists doesn't mean people will actually use it and, and switch to it. 
in, in many ways, sometimes COVID has done us a favor by taking certain options off the table. So we no longer could actually travel to conferences and yet you know, professional societies had to continue to exist and we had to communicate. So we figured out that we actually could have conferences on Zoom or other technology platforms. Uh, and that actually had wonderful consequences. First of all, uh, we had a much broader uh, base of participation, people who couldn't previously afford to travel halfway around the world, you know, sort of young researchers, people from uh, developing countries uh, could, could attend uh, essentially costless. You know, so we had broader participation. It reduced transaction costs. I didn't have to dedicate you know, three days of my life to a conference. I could actually do it like in one afternoon. Uh, and so by virtue of experiencing what, 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 this, what these new products or new technologies were like, it took away a little bit of the fear of change. Uh, and I think that has action implications for how to sort of yeah, get people, to, how to entice people to try something, yeah, sort of in maybe on a, on a trial basis. Uh, but once people have the experience of something that's new, like you, uh, trying the virtual, you know, the virtual meet uh, and, and liking it, but you, know, you might never try it unless somebody sort of offers it to you in a supermarket for free, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first time I tried it, I think it was um, Burger King was like doing lots of advertisements about Impossible Burgers, and I had not been to a Burger King in quite some time, but I decided to to check it out. Well, Elke uh, Weber from Princeton University, this has been such a fascinating conversation, and there's you know so many more questions I could ask you, but uh, since we're basically out of time, uh, I'd like to ask you the last question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack, something you've read or watched or heard uh, that uh, you think our listeners would enjoy. Well, can I give you three? Please. <laughs> Let's start with Project Drawdown that I already mentioned earlier. Project Drawdown is always worth spending some time with. You can watch the excellent videos uh, on their website, uh, or you can browse through their, their, their best-selling book a while ago in the New York Times bestseller. It's a real classic that talks about different solutions that are available to all of us and the people who've made those solutions possible. Number two, <laughs> Eric Johnson, who actually is my husband, uh, full disclosure, uh, he just published a very accessible and quite entertaining introduction to the topic of choice architecture that we discussed earlier. Uh, the book is called Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters. And then number three, and lastly, uh, there's an edited book called All We Can Save by Ayana Johnson and Catherine Wilson. It provides a lovely collection of essays and poems that are designed to provide uh, truth, courage, and solutions for the climate crisis, as it says on the title uh, page. Uh, these are short contributions, and they represent the vital voices of women scientists, women leaders, and women writers, because, as the editors say, to solve everything, we need everyone. Those are such great recommendations, and uh, I'm familiar with two out of the three, and um, and, and would, would second those recommendations, and yeah, we'll have to look into to your husband's book as well. Um, so Elko Weber, once again, from Princeton University, thank you so much for coming on Resources Radio. It's been a fascinating discussion. Real pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. 
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.